Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The New York State Legislature this week approved measures that would require hospitals and nursing homes meet minimum staffing levels of nurses and other health care workers. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Measures mandating minimum staffing at health care facilities have been around for several years, but the spotlight on stressed and understaffed hospitals and nursing homes during the COVID-19 pandemic finally prompted the bill's passage. Senate sponsor and Health Committee Chair Gustavo Rivera spoke before the vote. This is a historic moment. I think that it's important to underline in my time in the legislature, so I've been here for 11 years, and the one issue that I've had the most meetings on in my entire legislative career has been this issue. The measures provide different approaches to hospitals and nursing homes. The state health commissioner would establish minimum staffing levels for nursing homes and would impose civil penalties if the homes fail to meet the minimum standards. That comes after a provision in the state budget that requires nursing homes to spend 70 percent of their revenue on direct patient care and 40 percent on direct care providers. The bill that regulates hospital workers sets up clinical staffing committees in hospitals to determine staffing guidelines lines and to decide the proper ratio between patients and staff. The panels will include hospital administrators as well as registered nurses, licensed practical nurses and other staff that provide direct patient care. The legislation is backed by health care unions including New York State Nurses Association and the Healthcare Workers Union 1199 SEIU. Nurses Union Treasurer Nancy Hagen says the measures are a good start. Finally, we could have a strong law and the tools we need to advocate for our patients. Rudy Sukna, an RN and SEIU union member who works in a nursing home, says even before the pandemic, it was understaffed. And he says the pressure mounted when COVID struck. He says he never had enough time to talk to family members who wanted to know how their loved ones were faring. Last year during this time, I've seen patients, a lot of them, they were dying, you know, and it's like seeing your own family members die in front of you. And it's like, I felt helpless because I couldn't do anything for them because you're the only one there and we're trying to do our best. The measure is backed by the state's major hospital lobbying groups who say the addition of the staffing committees gives hospitals flexibility in making the staffing choices. But some nursing home owners say it could be difficult for them to meet their new standards. Michael Balboni is executive director of the Greater New York Healthcare Facilities Association. It's a nonprofit trade association representing downstate nursing homes. He says nursing homes have struggled for decades to find enough trained staff, and he says the state has not done enough to help recruit and retain nursing home workers. We haven't done anything to develop the workforce. 
And this has been an issue way before pandemics. And he says many nurses, after a long and difficult year, are leaving the profession. Balboni says state lawmakers cut Medicaid reimbursement rates that pay the costs for caring for many of the residents. At the same time, costs rose for PPE and other equipment needed to meet COVID protocols. The virus took a tremendous toll on nursing home residents and staff. 15,000 residents died of the disease in the homes and other long-term care facilities. Governor Cuomo and his staff's handling of the death numbers are the subject of a federal investigation. Balboni says some nursing homes might have to close if they have to meet the new standards. He says the approach should be collaborative to find a solution and not punitive. We should learn the lessons from this horrible time and we should institutionalize the things that worked and we should jettison the things that didn't. We're not doing it with this legislation. Senate sponsor Rivera says he believes the nursing homes will be able to cope with the new staffing standards and survive. The bill now goes to the governor's desk to sign or veto. A spokesman for Cuomo was noncommittal, saying the safe staffing measures are under review. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, this week you spoke with conservative party chair Gerard Jerry Kassar about Liz Cheney's fall and who will probably ascend to that spot, none other than New York's own and Trump darling Elise Stefanik. Well put, David. Trump darling is right. Lately, in the beginning, she was a moderate, but let us just say she's seen her opportunity like Plunkett of Tammany Hall, and she took it. And now they'll probably replace Liz Cheney, who will go down in history as a person who had some guts at a time when she needed it. Look, she's not perfect by any means. And her history is, you know, one of pretty severe conservatism. But right now, she is the person of the moment. And she may be speaking for her father, the former vice president, or the Bushes, who can't stand Trump, apparently. But whatever she's doing, she's doing it right. And an awful lot of people in the United States Congress could take a lesson from her. That is for sure. Let's just continue with your interview for a moment with Jerry Kassar of the Conservative Party, the who seems to think that Lee Zeldin is the answer to defeat whoever is the candidate. And we might assume it could still be Governor Andrew Cuomo. That's the congressman, of course, from Long Island. Very conservative. And as you pointed out, a Trumper who wants to run in New York, blue New York. You can imagine a Trumper thinking he can be governor. Now, of course, remember, the music in the background, the dark music, is that there's going to be a reapportionment, and New York has to lose one congressperson. Now, I doubt, because there are a lot of people on Long Island and a lot of Republicans, I doubt they're going to eliminate that district altogether. Nevertheless, I'm understanding that he's not going to run again, Zeldin, and so he runs for governor and loses like the long list of losers that the Republicans have mounted. Now, this guy may think, a Trumper, of course, as you point out, he may think that Cuomo is so unpopular that people will vote in any way for anybody else, even if they're a Trumper, even if they're a right winger. 
even if they spout nonsense, I don't think so. And we have yet to see what will happen. When the polls come out, most people say they would prefer he didn't run for a fourth term. Nevertheless, you can't beat somebody with no one. The question is, who you got? Who have the Republicans got? If Zeldin is the best they've got, then I have a feeling if, in fact, Cuomo is going to be the candidate, that he will win again, which is something he'd really like to do, considering the fact that it was denied to his father. Kassar also spoke to you about the census and the fact that the state is going to lose a congressional seat and the idea here that there's someone to blame in all this. And of course, for the conservative party, it's Governor Andrew Cuomo and the loss of population. Of course, the familiar refrain of taxes are too high and driving out business and others to flee to places like Florida and other lower taxed states. But as you pointed out, even despite the fact that we lost a seat, New York actually gained population. His response, well, we could have gained a lot more. Well, look, that's his job. His job is to attack the governor, we know. But it's a weak argument. The fact is, you can't say that we lost population when we didn't. We actually gained population. Not enough. Not on the same percentage basis that some of the other states did. And New York is still New York. There's nothing like it. But he has to make the arguments that are available to him. And why wouldn't he do that? Now, we lost one congressional seat. But, David, we lost it by 89 people. If 89 more people had answered the door, 89 people who were citizens or 89 people who weren't citizens, and we know there are an awful lot of people who don't answer that doorbell because they think they'd get arrested or deported. And specifically in New York, where that figure is pretty substantial. So I'm thinking it's a weak argument, but we'll see what happens in the election. When Mario ran for that fourth term, he lost. And he lost because people thought, okay, too much Cuomo. And they elected somebody named George Pataki, who didn't appear to have an awful lot on the ball, but who survived for three terms. In other words, some people may think it's just too much Cuomo. Yeah. Well, the fact is that Kassar defended Trump almost at every turn when you asked him about things like the coronavirus and Putin. Then came the question of Mike Pence, where he turned my head a little bit when he said I thought he was performing his constitutional duties and said he was expecting a number of calls and emails from conservatives after saying that. That's why I like the guy, to tell you the truth. There are some things that are so difficult to absorb, like the Republican line on Pence. Pence was good, 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 good until he was bad, 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 according to Trump. And went after him. The fact is that Pence is trying like crazy to raise his hopes of being president of the United States. That ain't going to happen, especially because Trump has put the curse on him. It is not in the cards. And he sees that. I think the thing I like about the conservative chairman is that when it's just too much to absorb, he won't do it. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartalk. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legalization of recreational cannabis in New York and New Jersey is bringing intense regulatory scrutiny, as the Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. 
In March, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed legislation legalizing adult recreational use of marijuana. As soon as next year, New Yorkers 21 and over will be able to buy smokable and edible forms of marijuana in retail stores. They'll also be able to grow at home up to six cannabis plants per person or 12 per household. Albany Law School recently held a webinar called Cannabis Law, the Path to Legalization in New York tracking marijuana's social path over the decades. Former general counsel with the New York State Department of Health, Richard Zanlauter, reminded viewers there wasn't always a war on drugs, and America's perception of certain substances historically has varied century to century. There was a time, and it was in the 1800s, when the country embraced uh, drugs. Morphine, cocaine, and heroin uh, were used as psychoactive medicines. Zanlauter cited as examples Coca-Cola, which originally contained cocaine, and a time when Bayer Aspirin marketed heroin. 29 states outlawed marijuana between 1916 and 1931. The 1936 movie Reefer Madness gave the drug a black eye, and it was effectively prohibited a year later. And they decided uh, as proponents of the 1937 Marijuana Act, that it was an effective propaganda tool to use it to uh, associate uh, violence with Mexican minority communities. Zanlauter adds the 1970 Federal Controlled Substances Act completely criminalized the plant. Legal Aid Society did a study of people of color who were arrested on marijuana charges in the year 2020 in New York City. It's 2020, so that's 50 years after the enactment of this act, and 94% of those arrested for marijuana uh, crimes under this act were uh, are, uh, people of color. Medical marijuana paved the way for acceptance of the recreational variety. Nicole Quackenbush, former medical marijuana program director at the New York State Department of Health, says the process is going full circle. So what's changing with the medical cannabis program with the new legislation? Uh, the Compassionate Care Act, which was signed in July of 2014, is repealed and being replaced. We have new medical conditions. Here are new conditions that are added, as well as any condition recommended by a patient's practitioner. So it really broadens the scope to help those patients who may be suffering from a condition where they're looking for an alternative um, and also helping those prescribers in weighing the risks versus the benefits for their patients. Quackenbush adds that for patients, prohibitions on smoking and growing marijuana end with the new legislation. Axel Burnaby, Assistant Counsel for Health to Governor Cuomo, expects retail marketing to give the state an economic push. You're going to have growers and processors and distributors. You're going to have you know, cooperatives and micro-businesses. Those are somewhat unique to to the, the cannabis industry and again infused with social equity and social justice what we're trying to do on the micro business side for example um, is is have small growers that would be able to do um, you know maybe they're already doing illicit grows maybe they, they're familiar uh, with 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 the cannabis plant and want to try their hand at growing but don't have the capital to really build out a full grow facility to be able to do a small grow process and distribute and sell their own products so they would be a special carved out license that could be vertically integrated in that way. Chris Alexander is government relations and policy manager for Village, a multi-state cannabis company based in Canada. What we have in, our, in terms of our social and economic equity program um, is really 
uh, an MWBE program on steroids, essentially, where we're really trying to target um, the folks who we want to access the market. Um, that includes people who've been impacted by prohibition. That includes people who live in communities that have been over-policed um, uh, for marijuana possession offenses. Um, that includes, you know, social and economically disadvantaged farmers who are, are struggling to keep, uh, you know, products flowing and keep their industry alive. Critics of legalization warned about its effects on parenting, motor vehicle safety and substance abuse. There's a link to the webinar at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Adirondack environmental groups are lauding a ruling from New York's highest court that finds a Department of Environmental Conservation project building snowmobile connector trails in the Adirondacks violates the state constitution. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley explains... In 2013, Protect the Adirondacks filed suit against the DEC and the Adirondack Park Agency over the project on Adirondack Forest Preserve lands. The New York Court of Appeals on Tuesday ruled that, quote, the planned construction of the Class II Community Connector Trails would violate the Constitution, unquote. The relevant clause is Article 14, which states, quote, Lands of the state now owned or hereafter acquired, constituting the forest preserve as now fixed by law, shall be forever kept as wild forest lands. They shall not be leased, sold, or exchanged, or be taken by any corporation, public or private, nor shall the timber thereon be sold, removed, or destroyed, unquote. Protect the Adirondacks Executive Director Peter Bauer says the ruling keeps the constitutional intent that the forest preserve be managed by the people. The court determines upholding past precedents from 1930 and 1993 that the level of tree cutting, uh, the level of forest clearing in this new type of wide road-like snowmobile trail that the state had been building uh, violated the forever wild clause of the state constitution. So it's a very powerful ruling from the Court of Appeals. Adirondack Council spokesman John Sheehan says this is an important decision for the health of the Forest Preserve and future decisions on public recreation. The court decided that the state can't create a large disturbance beyond foot trails uh, without permission from the voters. Essentially, they said... What you've been doing for the last hundred years, going around trees to create a trail and working with the terrain, is the right way to go. The court pointed out that it had stopped smaller things like bobsled runs on the Catskill Forest Preserve in the past and had required constitutional amendments for ski areas like Gore and Whiteface so that it ought to be doing the same in this case. The suit was filed after construction on the trails began. Sheehan says two previous lawsuits to stop the plan from moving forward had been filed by the Adirondack Council. The court threw the two cases out saying, well, it's just a plan. Nothing's happened to hurt the preserve yet. 
it took until 2013 for them to start cutting trees and using earth-moving equipment and that sort of thing on the ground in the park. We had hoped to prevent that from happening in the first place, but the court felt that uh, it was necessary to be sure that the state really intended to move forward before uh, judging whether the plan was legal or not. In a statement provided to WAMC, the Department of Environmental Conservation says, quote, while DEC is disappointed by this ruling, we appreciate the court's application of the longstanding ruling in the Association for Protection of the Adirondacks versus McDonald, which is consistent with DEC's ongoing efforts to provide access to the forest preserve and protect public safety, including the construction and maintenance of facilities associated with hiking and camping. DEC remains committed to serving as a steward of this essential and irreplaceable resource as we fulfill our statutory duty to manage the forest preserve for the use and enjoyment of the public, unquote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Owned by New York State and maintained by the Bannerman Castle Trust, Bannerman's Island is quite a sight for anyone riding the train past Beacon. There, on a 6.5-acre rocky island, stand the ruins of a Scottish castle in the Hudson Highlands. Tours of the castle resumed last week. Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard took a boat ride to the island, to get a closer look. We'll go all the way up to the residence. Do your trip. Stepping off onto Bannerman's Island, just yards from the dock are towering castle walls. So all of this Scottish design and thistles and brick mortar stucco to look like a Scottish castle, even though built in the early 1900s, has a look from Middle Ages. And he loved that, being a Scottish descent and very proud. That's Sheldon Stowe, a member of the Bannerman Castle Trust. The he Stowe is referring to is Francis Bannerman. Bannerman was in the family business of buying and selling scrap and surplus military equipment. Polypel Island, the island's actual name, was also of historical military significance in the Revolutionary War. The castle, which once stood seven stories, was actually used as a warehouse for Bannerman's business. Along with a separate residence, construction began in 1901. 50% of the warehouse's uh, walls are up, but over time and wind, the, uh, uh, the change and the breaking of the cement has crumpled some of it. We had put some supports on to try to keep the main tower structure uh, secure from the winds through the highlands, and the gap is uh, quite impressive here. Remaining walls are propped up by steel supports. What hasn't been worn down by the elements was destroyed by a fire in 1969, just two years after ownership of the property was transferred to New York. 
Stowe used to visit this place as a kid. His father worked for the West Point Museum, and when collectors would seek to visit the armory, Stowe would ride along in a private boat operated by a man named Clem Mosier, who worked for the Bannerman's business. Being a young kid, I could walk through the castle and take as much. Clem was nice, you know, what can you carry out? And you'd put the pith helmets on your head and canteens and bayonets and, you know, fake sword scabbards. Growing up here, Stowe appreciates all the work being done to not only maintain the property, but make it accessible to the public. Thinking when the trust started, they were able to bring people out here. I was not believing it until they built the dock and the 80 steps and the cement work and clearing trails in the state of New York, allowing access to the island uh, with limitations. There's a lot of teamwork that goes into supporting the structures, maintaining the gardens and trails, and making the island more accessible. Outside the Bannerman's residence, currently being renovated, there's a brand new cement sidewalk supported through a grant from nonprofit organization Parks and Trails New York. Jonathan Duda is the organization's grants administrator. I mean, the Bannerman Island, it's a trust, but we consider them a friends group um, of the New York State Parks. And um, yeah, with that just smaller, um, uh, the smaller groups, it, it would, you know, we're a lot more accessible for these groups to be able to, rather than having to go through some you know, huge organization. Neil Kaplan, executive director of the Bannerman Castle Trust, is preparing for another year of tours and performances on the island after the COVID-19 pandemic upended last year's season. Normally, we've been doing theater and concerts and different things. Because of COVID, we had to uh, abandon that stuff for last year. But now we're starting to bring things back. So we want people to be able to have a wonderful experience here on Bannerman's Island to uh, to enjoy the history that we have here because we have rich history with Bannerman's Island and to enjoy the, the gardens and the trails. Currently, the island can be reached by kayak or how I arrived for the tour on a boat that departed from Beacon's waterfront. It's a primary goal of the trust to get service restored from Newburgh in Orange County, also disrupted by the pandemic. That's also a goal of Orange County Tourism Director Amanda Dana. It's exciting, first and foremost, because it, it connects the two sides of the river, the east and the west. Of course, this is like our, our middle ground, which we do share this attraction with Dutchess County. But it's also an outdoor adventure with all kinds of history that people crave. For photos and more information on upcoming events and tours, visit WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2119. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.